Our Father, as we come again to the truths of Scripture, we ask that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our hearts and give us a spirit of humility to know you as creatures should approach you, and not with the uh, arrogance of the non-Christian fleshly mind, that we would be submissive to the authority of your word, and that where you speak, we shall listen. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to start tonight by going to that exercise uh, 2.1 over on page 21. And those three verses, the three scripture references that we had you look at, because all three of these are classic kind of passages that you see in the Old Testament text again and again. One is Job 38. So if you could turn your Bibles to Job 38. We'll look at Job 38. Isaiah chapter 40. Those are the two locations. There's a lot of more scriptures. For every scripture I quote in this thing on a certain area, you'll see a dozen scriptures. But um, in, in Job 38, verses 1 through 4, that is the classic kind of confrontation when God speaks to man. And I want you to observe carefully because these three scriptures we're going to look at right now are scriptures that establish this principle that, about Q and Q <laughs> that's in the lesson tonight. All right, let's look carefully. If you'll follow me as I read the first four verses of Job chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And he goes on and he has this, you can see as your eye drops down verse after verse after verse after verse, uh, it's a series of questions. Now what's striking about this is that God doesn't come up and tell him something directly. What's striking about this passage is that God peppers Job with one question after another. Bam, 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 bam. And look at the thrust of the question. Um, how, think, think how you would uh, explain why is God doing that? Why is this tactic being used in the confrontation between God and Job? Why does God use his approach? A series of many, many questions. If you'll just scan down quickly some of those questions, you'll see the answer to them is basically the same answer, always. Um, look, for example, in, in verse 4, just the first question. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the world? What, what do you suppose Job, uh, God is driving at? What does God want to establish in approaching Job this way? Well, obviously, what... Job has done for 37 chapters, as well as his counselors, is to try to figure out the mystery of evil and suffering. One of the classic problems. Frankly, if I were a non-Christian, I wouldn't even bother with evolution so much as I would bother with evil. The most destructive, anti-Christian approach to the gospel and it will hang up more people than any other objection to the Christian faith is the issue of good and evil. 
and the, the problem of evil. And Job is devoted to it. So it's striking, and we ought to remember this, whenever we have a problem and you're reading or you're discussing with people and you, you hear an objection to the faith, don't panic about it. Just ask yourself or ask the Lord to lead you through the Bible to where that problem is handled. Because we know from Scripture that all Scripture is God-breathed, prophet of doctrine. It's sufficient for every good work. So the answer's got to be somewhere in the Bible. All we have to do is be diligent enough to find the location of it. And here is a classic location of how God answers the problem of evil. So, first of all, he starts, as he does in verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, by, by cutting down the speculations of men. I mean, if there's nothing else that comes out of this, it's obvious that what comes out of it is that God is God and man is man. And what we are faced with is what we've been talking about for three or four weeks now. God insists on starting the discussion with the creator-creature distinction. You see that? He does not sit down as an equal with Job and say, gee, Job, you got some good ideas there. Now, let's, you and I, sit down and together we'll reason this through. It's not really the approach. The approach is, you don't know what you're talking about, so listen to me. Now, that kind of starting point, the creator-creature starting point, is deeply offensive to the carnal mind. This stimulates an intellectual revolt right from the start. A fleshly mind will rebel and revolt over this idea that you must listen to God's mind in this matter. And your mind is not capable of a starting point other than his. So the discussion starts right out with a diminishing, a radical diminishing of the human mind. This is not ridiculing human thought. It's simply arguing for a starting point to the discussion. So let's go down through that and you'll see it, it echoes through the passage. Look at verse 8. Who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? One of the early creation themes. Verse 12, have you ever in your life commanded the morning? Do you rule the universe, in other words? Verse 16, have you entered into the springs of the sea? Verse 19, where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the paths to its home? And he goes on and on and on and on. Verse 31, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? In other words, what controls do you have astrophysically? Verse 34, can you lift up your voice to the clouds so an abundance of water may cover you? And so on. Verse 39 gets into biology. He, basically, all these questions deal with areas of human thought, science, research, and so on. And yet, included in all of this is that God is pointing Job to creation as a reflection of the Creator. This is the glory of God revealed in creation. You know, Romans, Paul talks about the glory of God and so on. And you wonder, well, what does Paul mean when he talks about the glory of God in creation? Right here. God himself is pointing to his own glory in the creation throughout these passages. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 40. You'll see him do that again. 
And again, there's, God is dealing with a mystery. In Isaiah chapter 40, there's the problem of the evil again. Why do innocent people suffer? Same problem. And God insists on the same starting point. You notice in chapter 40 of Isaiah, look at the lead sentence. What is, how does this whole thing start out? Comfort, O oh comfort my people. Speak kindly to Jerusalem. Words of comfort. A voice is calling in verse 3. And it goes on to discuss this. And verse 7, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass, but the word of our God stands forever. See the authority of the scriptures. And, and he, he, this is, by the way, one of the first places in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9, where it says, O Jerusalem, bear of good news. That's one of the earliest places in the Bible, if not the earliest place, where the word gospel occurs. Look at the context. That's where gospel occurs. It's an announcement of God's gracious help. So he goes down through this and he's talking comfort, 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 all the way down verse 10, more comforting words, verse 11, more comforting words, and then he gets down to verse 12 of Isaiah 40. And watch the shift. Now we come to verse 12. And he says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hands and marked off the heavens by the span, calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in the balance? And it goes on there for several verses till you get down to verse 13. Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? Those are the things Paul quotes in his epistle to the Corinthians. And with whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding, and who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge? Now, why is God asking those questions, or God through Isaiah, asking those questions, verse 13 and 14? Notice the thrust of the question is to force us to salute and say, yes, sir. There's an authority of his being. And God, in all these passages, it's a theme that you want to see, in all these passages, God refuses to answer anyone on any other starting point than the one we've outlined. Now, don't you think that that is a model for how we need to look at life? See, the problem is we get trapped because we buy into a question that's thrown at us we don't carefully analyze the question and we go trotting off 30 miles an hour answering a question that was the wrong question to start with. God does not accept at face value our questions. And that's why in the Isaiah passage and in the Job passage and in many of these passages, God insists on a creator-creature starting point. Only with that as the origin of the discussion will he proceed. And this is why we're going to get into tonight the ramifications of this create-a-creature starting point. And why, if you start anywhere else, you'll wind up chasing your tail. And I'm going to illustrate that tonight with a common argument that Christians have used over the centuries to try to prove God's existence. And it has always failed. And I don't know anybody who has ever been led to the Lord by this argument. And yet it is the classic argument for the existence of God. You can read it in any Christian textbook. But it, it fails most often because it, of the way it approaches life without starting here.
It assumes something, and what it assumes is that man in his autonomy is able to start with his own rules for the discussion. And God does not start with our rules for the discussion. He starts with his rules for the discussion. Okay. Having said that, now let's move on to um, page 22 in the notes. We've reviewed... The, the issue of the starting point, the presupposition. Now what I want to do is go over to, uh, to the, on, on page 22, to the kind of the metaphor that I'm using here of a child and his tantrum. Now, this is somewhat demeaning, uh, I'm sure, to some people. But I think it's legitimate illustration. You've all seen, or done it yourself when you were a kid, you always get in a situation where uh, a child will get so angry or so mad that he's going to throw a tantrum and he's going to solve his problem and the way he's going to solve it, he's going to close his eyes and the problem's going to go away. Not going to look at you. The idea being, of course, that he can eliminate reality by shutting his eyelids. Now, that silly little picture is the picture of the carnal mind at work. That's the picture that Paul captures of the intellect of the fallen man in Romans 1. What the fallen mind wants to do, because it wants to insulate itself from the revelation of God in and around it, the only way it can try that is throw a tantrum. It throws the tantrum by shutting the eyelids, that is, destroying the perception so that the evidence for God is deliberately suppressed and not seen. And all the while thinking that once it does this, it's generated a, an excuse for itself when faced ultimately with God's judgment. And that's the whole argument of Romans 1 when Paul says, no, sorry, there is no, you have no excuse because you've shut your eyelids to truth that's there. And shutting your eyelids to the truth that's there doesn't make it disappear. It's still there. So, that's why I've used this in the illustration. What I want to show you now is what these eyelids are. So, on, as we review how to see God uh, without, or shutting the, with a shut-eyed approach, is we refuse to start there with a creator-creature distinction. What the unbeliever and the carnal mind tries to do is to start from the creature independently of the Creator. And you remember in our last lesson we said that the three basic questions that men ask, these three basic questions are answered one way or they're answered another way. Let's review. One question says, who am I? Okay, that answer, the answer to that question is on the left side of that chart is, who am I? I'm a creature. And as a creature, I'm subordinate to my Creator, and He is my authority. So right here, however I answer that, I set up what my mind is, how I'm going to use my mind, and what kind of arguments I'm going to find, and what kind of thought patterns I have. So I start with a creator-creature distinction, and that sets up how I begin to think about myself. 
However, if I start with it myself, and I believe that the universe is just out there, there is no creator, because I don't want that interruption in my life, I don't want the interference of a creator to whom I must be responsible, now I create this universe of my own imagination, and in that universe, we said, I am alone. Because while there are other people there, there's no person that guides the entire universe. It's just a shadowy, dark, bleak, chance-driven sea of chaos. That's what the universe is, and I mentioned this is why I'm convinced this is the picture people who get into drugs and everything else have on their mind. Everything's out of control. I'm all alone. And it's not just you know, a silly thing in the street. There's, there's a, lot, a depth to this. And this is why unless these depth questions are addressed in a heart-to-heart -heart way, where the Spirit of God is allowed to have His way in the mind, you don't solve these problems. They just go on and on and on and on and on and on and on. You go through all the therapies you want to and it doesn't work because it never answers the basic question. We said another question is, what is truth or how do I know? And we said that that can be answered in two ways. It can be answered as a creature where I look to my Creator for the truth. So truth, in this case, is a person. It's the person of the Creator. It's not just a set of principles. It's not a set of abstract ideals. It is a person who has a definite character. And we're going to learn about his attributes. And his character is the source and root of truth. All truth. Not just, just truth that, um, uh, gee, this is right and this is wrong, but mathematical truth, scientific truth. All of those are reflections and projections and, and revelations of his character. And we'll show that in the attributes of God. And then we said, what should I do? The question of purpose in my life. What should I do? The moral question. Oh, by the way, in, the, in this right side here for the creature, truth is whatever man makes it. And we said there's a word to describe that. It is this word, autonomous. And that part of the word, N-O-M, comes from the Greek word nomos, which means law, and auto means self. And autonomous means the self generates the law. In other words, I legislate reality. And this is, the, this is the autonomous mentality. Always is the autonomous mentality. And what I'm showing you here is it simplifies things in learning. Because now what we have is not 862 different philosophies of life. There are only two. Every one of the philosophies of life boiled down to one of these two views. Now, sometimes it takes a little thinking to, to trace it. But I assure you, there are only two answers to life. There's this answer, starting from the greater creature perspective of Genesis 1, or there is this answer, starting from the perspective of me, out, starting in this universe of the unknown around me, I know not what, but I make up my universals. Man projecting his own universals, autonomous, self-generated law, self-generated universals. Those are the only two approaches. All right, so when we start then, 
talking about God and his existence, we look at how, what approach we use to start with this. The third one, what should I do? Well, God defines what I do, so it's God who gives the, the, the ethics, the rules. Over here, the autonomous man who is alone, he generates his own ethics. And as the Bible says, just another fancy way of saying, they do what is right in their own eyes. Book of Judges. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> that in a nutshell, that chart is a very important chart. And it's one that you can use when you analyze literature. It's one that you can use in reading assignments. It's one fact that it would be a good discipline for you to learn to analyze drama, movies, epics, Take the chart out and start asking the three questions. How does this story, how does this philosophy, how does this author answer this question, this question, and this question? And it will quickly become obvious, start doing this, that they are coming from one of these two places. So let's see now why it's so important to start with open eyes and not closed eyes. Closed eyes, the closed eye tantrum approach is this. This thing on the left here, where we're saying that we're alone, we are king, we make our own universals, and we will do what is right in our eyes. Now, lest this become something strange, let me give you a religious counterpart to this, where it insidiously creeps into evangelism. Often, out of maybe legitimate concerns, because we want to win someone to the Lord, because we want them so bad to become a Christian, what we try to do is dilute the offense of the gospel. And we try to come across with a message that goes something like this, uh, Jesus can help you, Jesus can do this, and Jesus can do that, and so forth, so forth. So we violate something right off the bat. We're starting to talk about an undefined Jesus. We haven't given any content to J-E-S-U-S, -S, other than, and most people are so illiterate as far as the scripture goes, they have no idea. Um, I remember one time early in our marriage, we were living in an apartment in Dallas, and never will forget this, this little kid, uh, he came crying to the door one day because his mother went off and left him and so on, and we took him in, and, uh, start my, and my wife started talking about Jesus. And the kid looked up at Carol and said, Who's she? Raised in 20th century America. So immediately, when you start talking about that Jesus is going to do this, that Jesus is going to do that, you better be careful that they understand who Jesus is. And the other thing is, wouldn't you just love to invite Jesus into your heart? Now, there's nothing wrong about Jesus in the heart, but if you approach it to the point where you're giving the impression that, that it's all up to them and there's no sweat in this thing, and um, uh, gee, wouldn't it be nice to add Jesus to all your other trophies? We haven't preached the gospel. We may get converts, but the converts aren't to the Christ of Scripture. All we do is we go through sort of a salesman approach. And the reason that we don't get real converts to this method is we started in the wrong place. There is no way, no matter how much I love someone, no matter how much I want them to become a Christian, there is no way I can short-circuit the offense 
of the creator-creature distinction. They have got to face that fact that we are talking about the infinite personal creator who alone is the authoritative truth. Period. And he sustains even our rejection of him. And that's offensive. And there's no substitute for it. But let me illustrate, as I did down on page 22 at the bottom, one of the problems that historically, where you see this acting out, some of you may, may bore you, but let me go through because there are some who might be interested in this. One of the many arguments for God's existence is called the cosmological argument. Now, I'm going to show you the logic of the argument, and I'm going to show you where the mistake is. Not every time this argument is used, by the way, is it this bad. I'm going to give you a deliberately bad, bad statement of the argument. The argument will start out something like this. Everything has a cause. Everything has a cause. And so this proceeds to the second step, bottom of page two. Therefore, the universe has a cause. One of the conclusions, the universe is something, everything has a cause, so therefore, the universe has a... We come out with an equation, is God. Now, there are f more potent forms of this argument. I'm using a deliberately sloppy one because I want to show the point. This argument is so easily answered. If I am an atheist and you ever feed me this piece of garbage... I'm going to chew it out and spit it back at you, and I can do it very easily. All I have to do to negate this argument is to take premise one, everything has a cause. You said the universe has a cause. Guess what I do? God has a cause. Now what are you going to do? Because I've just taken your principle that you articulated in step one, and I'm applying it to God like you apply to the universe. And I can push you back and back. Well, God has a cause, and God, the cause of God, and then there's a cause of the cause of God, and we get into an infinite regress and go on and on and on to mystery. So you haven't answered anything. And I have seen personally, I've watched Christians get had this way uh, in debates, because a sharp atheist will know his way around this argument. I mean, any, any intelligent atheist knows how to handle his way around the argument. Well, what's wrong with the argument? Let's look at it. Because this is one of the things I don't want you, when we get into the attributes of God in this next section, I don't want you to, to get sloppy. And we're going to be very careful how we talk about our God. And one of the things we'd be careful of is right here. The clinker in this argument is, is a mistake embedded in this, in this statement. Everything has a cause. What's happening here is that embedded right here in this word, we have made in, verse, in, in this first line of the argument, we have made a claim that no matter what we are talking about, God, man, creation, it all has a cause. The principle of that first line of the argument applies in the same way to God as it applies to the universe, as it applies to gravity, as it applies to anything. We have made a universal. This is a fake universal. A universal statement that treats the creator and the creature identically. 
And all the atheist does is he wipes you out at step three by simply plugging God into the equation that you gave him. So don't give him the equation. The argument is wrong because it presumes that you can make a statement about the creator and the creature and mean the same thing for both of them. In other words, you're, submit, you're, you're putting it, as it were, this universal stands up high and underneath it is both God and man. And so we're making a universal statement that encompasses both God and man. We are so profound in our intellects and have so many degrees after our names and we are so stunningly high in our IQ that we can come up with a universal that encapsulates both God and everything else. And on the basis of that vast intellectual strength, we can prove that God, you know, so forth and so on. What's wrong with it? It's an arrogant statement at step one. Where do we get this authority to make a universal truth of anything, whether it's cause, whether it's love, whether it's justice, whether it's right, whether it's wrong, whether it's space, whether it's time, whatever this attribute or characteristic is, we cannot state it as an abstract quality that applies to the creating creature in the same way. If we do, God is going to face us down like he did Job. Who are you that speaks words without knowledge? So let's come over on, on page 23 and we'll carry this argument out a little bit further. I gave you a diagram there of trying to show on page 23 what I'm getting at. What we do not want to say is what that diagram says. What we're doing is we're having some quality. It can be fill the blank in. It can be cause. It can be truth. It can be justice. It can be space. It can be time. Um, it, it can be power. Whatever the attribute. That's why I just put Q. And we're saying that here's God underneath and here's man so forth. We're all underneath that quality. So the quality takes priority in, in, over everything else. Now, practical illustration. Look at the middle paragraph on page 23. Here's where you get in trouble. Not only do you get in trouble with the atheists, but you get in trouble with anti-Trinitarians. Let's look at that paragraph, middle one, page 23. Here is why anti-Trinitarians like Muslims, Mormons, and Jehovah's Witnesses devastate Christians. These pseudo-biblical people come with a definition of threeness and oneness as a quality that applies in the same sense to God and man. After showing that something cannot be both three and one in the realm of man, they merely apply the logical conflict to God and thereby prove the Trinity doctrine is self-contradictory. I mean, it's very easy to do. It doesn't take a profound mind to do this. The problem is we disagree at the starting point of the argument. Don't grant the argument. You cannot, if you set this up, then your Jehovah's Witness is going to come along and say, oh, gee, that's great. Let me let Q equal number. And that means that the concept of number applies to God and man the same way. I can show a conflict that something can't be three and can't be one, and so therefore, with God, it can't be three and can't be one either. So, so much for your Christian trinity. And the problem is, it's the answer that comes out of the argument depends how you set up the argument. Don't set it up this way. 
The Bible doesn't. Remember we started the lesson tonight? How did God face down Job? What was the point? He started peppering him with questions. Can you do this? Remember those questions in Job? Were you there? Were you there, Job? Can you make a universal that encapsulates me with you in the same boat? Can you, Job, call upon the sun to rise? Can you, Job, call upon the clouds and make them rain? Can you, Job, ever do anything that puts a universal above me and you together? And the answer is obviously no. And that's why where you see God confronting man in Scripture, he does not do this. God, in all these passages, in Isaiah 40, Job 38, whatever the argument is, you will never, ever observe in the Bible this argument set up that way. That's a phony way of setting up the argument. It's the way the non-Christian always sets up the argument. It is the way the secularist sets up the argument. It is the way pagans set up the argument. And so that's why Mormons set it up that way, the Muslims set it up that way, the Jehovah's Witnesses set it up that way, and they always triumph. And we wonder, well, what happened? Well, we started the argument the wrong way. Don't let them start this way. God does not let Job start that way, and Isaiah didn't let the people in his day. Comfort, comfort, O ye Jerusalem. And then he says, and I take counsel from no one. I give counsel. I don't take it. There's a difference. And it's offensive because the sinner's heart doesn't want to bend the knee in humility to that sort of authority. And this is why I keep saying it, and we'll say this again and again. There are certain things we want to share love, we want to share grace, folks, but we can't compromise truth. And when we go to witness, or we go to evangelize, or when we deal with our own hearts... And the battle of temptation in our own hearts, there has to be a sort of uncompromising ruthlessness. It's gracious, it's, it's kind, but it's uncompromisingly ruthless and never, ever permitting the creator-creature's distinction to go away. It will always be present. Let's turn uh, to a passage of Scripture now. We've looked at some of these. Let's um, turn to Proverbs 26.4. This is one of those paradoxical statements. You can... Uh, I'm only going to cover Proverbs 26.4. You'll quickly look down if you're smart and observe it in the text and you'll look, see, ah, but look at Proverbs 26.5. Proverbs 26.5 is the opposite of Proverbs 26.4. Well, yes, but we don't have time to worry about that tonight. It's not a conflict. It's looking at it from a different perspective. But I want you to observe Proverbs 26.4 because it is a warning that applies to our own carnal hearts it's a warning that applies to paganism in general around us. 26.4 Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. You see? You don't answer a fool according to his folly. If this guy has set up the argument this way, that's folly. You don't answer a fool according to his folly. Beware of how you set up the argument. 
When we get into Genesis 3, we'll see Satan pulled it on Eve. Right from the start, Satan pulled it on Eve. He set up the argument, and she just went right on with it, and Adam with her. I mean, he's slick. Satan is slick. The most brilliant creature who ever lived. And we, we kid ourselves if we don't think we're up against a very intelligent being. Brilliant being. So, the Bible warns us, never answer a fool according to his folly. Now, quite obviously, you can't answer someone if they haven't asked you a question. So, verse 4 presumes that the fool has come to you and made some sort of an initiative toward you. And at that point, you have a choice of buying into the way he set it all up, or, like God comes to Job, you say, whoa, wait a minute, at least you do this in your heart. Lord, is this right? Is there a minefield here? Am I walking on solid ground when I reason this way? What's under here? Be suspicious of questions. Before someone asks you, like they have some of our teenagers, to debate something, um, be careful of the question. Somebody asks you, uh, well, why did you debate the question whether creationism should be taught in the schools? Negotiate the question. Say, no, I'd, I'd rather prefer to debate another topic. Can truth be taught in the public schools? Now, all of a sudden, whoops, when you phrase the question this way, now that introduces a little a different kind of baggage, doesn't it? See, don't agree to a question. All right, let's come over on page 24 now to where the, the proper approach. We've, we've said the wrong way to set up an argument, so let's, let's come over now to the proper way of setting up the argument. And if you'll turn to Isaiah 40:25 while we're doing that, there's a little word I want you to notice in the text of Isaiah 40. And it's that word that we've really secretly been aiming at all night. Isaiah 40, 25. Same chapter we started with tonight. In verse 25, look carefully at what God is talking about in light of what we've just said. To whom, then, will you liken me, that I should be his equal? See what God's saying? He's claiming uniqueness for himself. He's claiming that he is utterly different. And there's nothing that we can make exactly like him. He says, lift up your eyes on high, and see who has created these stars, the one who leads them forth by number. He calls them by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Now skip down to verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator. See? Word Creator here now. The Creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired. And here's the word I want you to notice. Watch this one. Last clause, verse 28. His understanding is what? Now I don't know what some of your translations have. Mine happens to have inscrutable. Anybody got another word in the translations? What's that? Unsearchable. Okay. What? No one can fathom. Okay, so we had a variety of translations, but you can pick up the flavor of what's being claimed here. 
Notice, let's look at that again. His understanding, not ours. His understanding, his mind, his way of thinking is inscrutable. So, now what does that mean? Let's, let's look at it in terms of our diagram. The question isn't set up this way. The way God sets the question up is that he insists that he is different. We are the creatures down here in creation. He is the creator, infinite in size, infinite in, in magnitude. And whatever quality we ascribe to him is not the same as a quality that occurs with us. There's no quality common to God and man in an identical way. Similar, yes, but not identical. Let's go to Isaiah 55, 8. All of this follows from creation. If God is not the creator, this is not really so. In which case, God is more intelligent than we are. God knows more than we do. And it's just a quantitative difference. But that's not what the Bible is saying. In Isaiah 55, verse 8, God is not saying in Isaiah 55, 8, that he merely knows more. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. There's a qualitative difference in the thoughts of God. He is incomprehensible. And that's a word that we're going to use again and again, and we use it to protect ourselves and the way we speak of our God. He is incomprehensible. Now, don't panic. That does not mean that you can never know him. Let me, let me be careful with our vocabulary words. Write down this word, and then, by the side of it, write a qualifier. It does not mean you can't know God. Because we obviously, the Bible says you can know God. What incomprehensibility means is that you can never know him in an infinite, perfect, and total way. Never. Isaiah 55. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As creatures, we never completely grasp the nature of God. He is always awesome. And you know what this does? It protects our spirit of worship. We always have a God whom we worship because he's ultimately incomprehensible. We can never dictate to him the path of our lives. This, this is the corollary, folks. Bill has preached sermons, and just recently in, in Philippians 2, the virtue of humility, which in the Christian thing is a classical virtue. And this is the corollary to the, attribute, to the virtue on the human scale, the creature scale, of humility. Humility operates in the environment of incomprehensibility. It's the incomprehensibility of God that causes me to be humble. Because I realize that no matter how great I think my thoughts are, they are not his thoughts. And his ways are always higher than my ways. And this is going to precipitate an interesting thing in your Christian life because when we come into trials in life, we always want to know, well, why did God let this happen? And you ever notice that in that passage, and sometimes if you haven't noticed, I urge you to read Job 38, 39, 40, 41. Because Job wants to know too. Hey, I'm getting creamed down here, God. Give me a clue. 
And isn't it funny, when God shows up to Job, he says, well, Job, you see, what I was trying to do to you with that disease was this and this and this. And then because your wife told you I was going to work with her this way, this way, this way. Isn't it striking there's none of that when God comes to Job? You you wonder, well, how come? You know, I mean, give the guy a clue here. Rather than do that, what God does is set himself off from Job. And at the end, what do you have Job doing? as he confronts this. Let's turn back to Job for a moment. Watch. He wants us to come to him his way. Two verses I want you to see. First, Job 40, verse 3. Job chapter 40, verse 3. After he gets to this point in the confrontation, Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to thee? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer twice and I will add no more. And God continues the treatment. Therapy continues. So let's go over to Job chapter 42. And he says in verse 1, 2, and 3, He answered the Lord, said, I know that thou canst do all things, and that no purpose of thine can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And look at his admission. Here's the virtue of humility. Of thinking humility. This is not, by the way, this is not give up itis like the uh, Zen person, you know, that believes in irrationality. But here's the virtue of humility, responding to face to face with the incomprehensibility of God. Who, he says, therefore I have declared that which I do not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. He was trying to create his own universals. And God doesn't call us to do that. He calls us in a humble way to trust him for his trustable character. We trust in the trustworthiness of God. We do not trust in the capabilities of our intellect to fathom Him. And that is always the battle in a practical way in our lives. We have always want to figure it out. And it's not wrong to exercise our minds. There's enough in Scripture to exercise our mind. You want to exercise your mind, try the Trinity on for size. There's plenty in here to exercise minds with. But when it comes right down to, to the faith walk of a Christian. It's basically, I have to trust his character. I don't know what he is doing. I do not know what he's doing in my life. I have glimpses of it, but I don't know the told story. And that's why I believe in the book of Revelation, we are given names that no man knows except God. Now, why do you suppose that? C.S. Lewis has some neat stuff in his Narnia Chronicles about that. And, and the idea is that when we get to heaven we will hear him speak our name. And it will be, whatever this name is we get will be a revelation of what he's been doing in our lives. And that's why no man can understand. Suddenly it will just click. Everything that went on in your life will suddenly click. Well, that's why. And I believe that's why the name is given eventually to us. To give us at least a pattern of all these little crazy things that go on in our lives. And we wonder, what is the story? But the trust and the focus is his character, not learning everything about how he thinks. That's 
incomprehensible. So therefore, what I've tried to do in this is to show that when we speak in the next unit about God and his qualities, we're going to talk about attributes like love and his omniscience and omnipresence and so on. We're going to talk about a quality of God's character. And we're going to talk about an analog to that down here in creation. And we're going to sharply distinguish between God has his attribute and how we learn of that attribute down here. And we're going to say, I just expressed it, and I know you haven't had some math or something, and maybe I overshot here, but I like to just use this. It's just maybe a little trite, but here's, here's the pagan position. That the quality of God ultimately is the same as the quality of man. And you can fathom it. What the Bible insists on and, of course, the, the, the person who was the out-and-out liberal atheist, he claims that because of this thing, this equation suddenly also can become that is nothing like the quality. And that is, you can't know anything. But what the Bible says is that the qualities of God are like the qualities we experience. So there's an analogy. And the analogy is there by virtue of the fact of creation. How can we know God? Because we're made to know him. But our knowledge of him is the knowledge of a creature. We are not made gods to know him as God. We are made as men created in his finite image to know him as creatures can know him. Do we know him truly? Yes, we do. We will never know him as he knows himself. To ascend to that point is to yield to the satanic thing that I will become like God most high. And that is arrogance. You see, the virtue of humility and the virtue of arrogance are linked together over this issue of the incomprehensibility of God. Satan believes that he knows God so thoroughly that he can become like him. Given just a few more lessons, a little bit higher tuning of the IQ, and he can become and rise to sin to the throne of God himself. In other words, God is only quantitatively better. God knows 52 things and Satan knows 50. All he needs to know is two and that makes him equal with God. That's not what the Bible says. You can know an infinite amount of stuff as a creature and still not duplicate in your mind what is in his mind because his thoughts are not your thoughts. All right, let's... let's um Go to a passage in Scripture that kind of shows you how that comes off in practical life. Let's go to Romans 11. Romans chapter 11. Verse 33. Paul has just got through talking about the issue of Israel and the Gentiles. and It's just been a brilliant, it's a brilliant analysis of history here. And talk about a, a great insight into where history is going. Romans 11 is it. And after he gets done, down at the end, verse 33, verse 34... Verse 35 and verse 36. Look how he ends it all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How what? How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his count? Now, isn't that a familiar verse? Where have we seen that one before tonight? Isaiah chapter 40. See? Paul's quoted that passage. Or who has first given him that it might take back to him again? Another citation of the Old Testament. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Now, you can't say verse 36 in anything more than a trite emotional response. There can't be any depth, any moving depth to verse 33 if you don't really, in your heart, believe that our God is an incomprehensible person. He is so incomprehensible that it means that if we've been in heaven 10,000 years, we still have an infinite amount to learn from Him. And He has an infinite amount, unexhaustible amount of new things to show us forever and ever and ever and ever. An inexhaustible supply. The revelation is endless. We never get to the point where, well, we can close the book on God's revelation. We know it all. Even in heaven. Because our God is that immense. Well, if you look at the handout for, to, for next time, uh, again, two weeks, please. Uh, don't forget. Um, on page... Oh, before we get to that handout, page 25 of the handout we had, I want to just point out one thing. The third paragraph from the bottom, one that begins with Genesis 1, 26 to 27. I want you to, to just read through that with me. Follow me. In Genesis 1, 26 to 27, informs us that we are the image of God. Everybody knows that. We've read that in Genesis 1 already. We are a finite replica of Him. We are not identical to Him, but we are what He would look like if projected down to finite size. The qualities of the Creator appear as finite qualities in creation. Now, let me show you that that word in Genesis 1.26 and 27, we read it several times so far in our study, it's, let us make man in, what? Our image. In the likeness of us. We will create him, male and female. What were those two words? In the image and in the likeness. Two words in Genesis 1.26. Now, that's how God made us. He made us as, as finite creature replicas of him. Look what we do backwards. Turn to Romans 1 and we'll see the same two words. Image and likeness. verse 23, Romans chapter 1, the exact words are used. And here the carnal mind takes that very truth and reverses it. In verse 23, they exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness. That's those two words. Image, likeness. Of corruptible man, of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. And what, what's said here is that God, as the Creator, made man down here in the universe, He made man in His image. What the autonomous mind tries to do, because it doesn't believe in God, it eliminates God, and it has now this one level, 
reality where God, if he's up there, is sort of part of the universe along with man. Now this autonomous man generates an image of God like that of himself. Notice, he, gen- he has the image of God in the form of man, birds, four-footed animals. You know, the ancient art forms and how gods manifest themselves as animals. Ever notice the Sphinx? Um, the Assyrian uh, lion, winged lion. Uh, you look all through the ancient art forms and you see their gods are depicted as, as, as men and also as animals. There's an interplay between them, the transmutation of form between animals and man. And isn't it striking that nowhere ever in Scripture does God show up as an animal? Yes, there are metaphors like the lion in the tribe of Judah. But show me one place in the text of the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation where God ever shows up as an animal. Every time he shows up, he appears, even in the Son of Man in the Old Testament, the Christophanies, it's always a man. Because unlike every other deity in the ancient world, God refuses to picture himself zoomorphically. He pictures himself only anthropically. Why? Because there's only one life form in the creation and in the universe that is appropriate expression of God himself, and that's us. So it's ironic that the arrogant, unbelieving man who wants to make himself God turns from his very imagehood that gives him such value and turns around and makes God like animals and man and, and we're all one of this continuum stuff. It's ironic how this happens, the perversion of sin in our minds. So, this is the reversal and this is what we want to guard against. And again, just quickly going forward here on the attributes in the next section, you'll see I structured that so that there's just one attribute after another beginning page 26. Uh, 27, 28, and 29. Um, there's, there's just one attribute after another and I phrase those what is alike and what is dislike. What is the similarity between God and uh, God's character and our character, our understanding of it, and yet what is different. So for example, on page 27 you see the attribute of omnipotence means. And look up those verses. There's a lot of verses in this, in this passage, that, or this section of, of text that I've given you tonight. And yet his omnipotence is not identical to creature energy. He never exhausts his energy. He has never needs sustenance from outside of himself. His energy is not conserved. So we try to distinguish all this as we go through. And then finally, on page 29, there's an important little question I have. There are two questions that I'd like you to, to, to think about. And I'm really, I really mean this because I think this can help you if you have trouble getting into the Bible for yourself. Let me give you a challenge. On page 29, that first exercise, select one chapter from any book of the Bible. Your pick. Got plenty of chapters to pick. Just pick a chapter. Prayerfully read it through, asking God to bring to your mind His attributes, the ones we just got through talking about. Write out your observations and thought in terms of the attributes we just learned. Take any chapter. It doesn't, doesn't matter whether it's a story or what. I just want to challenge you because I know some of you doubt this. I want to challenge you to show me one chapter in the Bible that doesn't have at least one attribute of God there revealed. Show me one. Take any chapter. 
Now, don't take the introduction to the Schofield Bible or something. I mean the text of Scripture. And in, in, in that, look for his attributes. That is a discipline, people, of coming to know him through the text of Scripture. God, show me yourself. And when you get trained to do this, a neat thing begins to happen. You begin to perceive him because you know what to look for. This is part of his character. Oh, I see that character there again. I see this attribute again. It's a basic fundamental discipline. Now, the second exercise is the reverse of the first one. In the first exercise, you're passive. In the sense, you're acting to... to suck truth out of the text of Scripture. But in, in the second exercise, I've reversed it. Here, you want to put out the truths that you learn onto circumstances. And this is the other discipline. List four bad circumstances you have faced. And I just say write it out because it always helps me, I know, to, to straighten out my thoughts if I write them out. Write out how knowing and trusting attribute X, Y, or Z would have made a difference in that circumstance. It's a neat little exercise. And it's a great discipline to do because you'll quickly get the image after you've done this about all it takes is about one exercise, one, one swing through this method. And you suddenly, wait a minute. You know, I can just use this method on about anything there is in life. It's just knowing him and putting him next to the circumstance. It cuts the circumstances down to size, down to manageable size. So it's an exciting way, I think, of taking the content of Scripture and our God, putting it together. Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you that you have provided us a spirit of truth, the same spirit that is of you, who knows you as you know yourself, and yet has condescended to express those thoughts and thoughts that we creatures understand in the text of Scripture and illuminates our heart to the truth of those scriptural texts. And we thank you through our risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Nine promptly. I won't drag it out. Um, anybody have a comment or, or question they'd like to start things with tonight? Or is the whole thing incomprehensible? <laughs> Well, let me um, maybe oil the works here a little bit. Um, one of the problems that is the psychology of, of knowing, uh, an awareness, and you have to kind of, in your mind's eye, understand the conflict, and I guess you can do this by trying to imagine yourself doing this. If we face a circumstance in life and we have a problem trusting the Lord for it. Isn't it usually that we don't have confidence in, we don't feel like we see the picture and we really want to know a little bit more. In other words, Gee, you know, if I do this, then what's going to happen over here? What's going to happen over here? What's going to happen over here? And it's sort of like we want up front. We want to up front know this. And there's a tension there. There really is. About 
being comfortable with figuring it all out ahead of time, and then we'll trust the Lord. Well, if you think about it, what are we really doing when we do that? What we're doing is we're saying that His plans have to be subject to our veto. We will decide after we figure it out. But you see, that we business goes back to autonomy. And that's the autonomous spirit. So, what we're talking here may sound very theoretical. And it indeed is. There's a lot of theory behind this. In fact, there's so much theory behind it that modern educators don't even have a clue when they start teaching subjects. They never bring this stuff up. And it's tragic because this is what under, underlies truth. That's why I wasn't being flippant when I said if you're asked ever to debate the question in school, shall creationism be taught? I think a more fundamental question, should truth be taught? And nobody wants to talk. Truth and death are two of the no-nos to talk about because they're, they're obscene. They really are. They're, they're pornographic and obscene to the non-Christian to raise these kinds of questions. And, and we have to because if we're Christians, we're raising them every moment of our waking life, every time we trust the Lord. Every time we trust the Lord, we're saying, I don't know what the future holds, but I do know who holds the future. And that, that simple little hymn coming from Philippians and other passages, that simple little hymn expresses in a nutshell exactly what we've been talking about. That hymn confesses. It's a musical confession of incomprehensibility. And it's the prelude to faith. When I trust the Lord, I have said He is incomprehensible. And my basis of walk in the life is because He has demonstrated to me in, in the, whatever he has revealed of himself to me, he has revealed that he is trustable. And because I know he is trustable, I'm going to trust him for this. And when I trust him for this, and I trust him intelligently... See, this is where our, our non-Christian skeptics, they think we're naive. They really do. You know, if you, have, you know, if you had non-Christians in your family, they think, oh yeah, well, here's the religious idiot of the family. And you've all experienced that probably in your own homes, in your own lives. And really, they're the idiots. Because if you think about it, they don't have comprehensive knowledge. So, hey, where are they going in life? They haven't got it figured out. So, don't come to me as a Christian and say, I'm stupid and I'm an idiot because I don't have it figured out and you don't have it figured out. So, hey, you live in glass houses, don't throw rocks. The difference is, that I know the one who controls those facts, and I trust him. So what's the crime there? And that's why there's a passage in Deuteronomy 29.29, in the lesson we had for today, where God says, the secret things, uh, through Moses, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong to us and to our children. And what he's confessing is there's lots of secret things that he will not reveal. And I have always found it amazing that when God confronted Job, he didn't do it like I would have. You know, hey, if I would have been God, I felt sorry for this guy. He's getting creamed. And I want to tell him, Job, look, trust me. Let, let me show you how good I am. I did this and I did that and it all fixed together. And that's what I would want to do to Job. And I would never have, if I were God, <laughs> thinking, I wouldn't want to have confronted him like God did. 
but God did do it that way. So I have to say, well, Clough, you're crazy. You're, you're mixed up. You don't have the mind of God because God didn't do it the way you thought he should do it. And the way you, you reason your way through there is to simply say that God approached Job that way to ensure if all else failed, Job would understand that God is God and Job is Job and there's an infinite chasm between them. And if he would just get that, it would resolve the practical, non-theoretical, everyday vexations of life. So this is not some hairy theology that doesn't have practical application. All we're doing is we're carrying out exactly the way God approached Job. Yes, D. Oh, yes. Yes, okay, that, that, that's a that's good question. That's a good question because I think I failed to clarify something here. When we approach either our own hearts in a, in a spiritual conflict and battle situation where it's, it's internal or whether it's an external conversation with someone, when I say we want to start the same place God did with Job, I don't mean that we use necessarily the same verbatim technique God used with Job. What I mean is that the technique that God used with Job assumed the creator-creature distinction. It was never even discussed there. And what, what we have to do when we talk to people, I believe, and this sounds paradoxical, but I believe to win someone to Christ, you have to push them away first. And by that I mean that they have to understand that the biblical faith conflicts with their entire worldview. In other words, uh, no, we, we like to minimize our differences so we can communicate, and that's our normal everyday approach. And yet I think scripturally what we ought to do is enlarge our areas of differences. So that, and gracious, it can be done politely and, and graciously. But, um, like for example, um, when Dr. Tecklenburg and I were, were in the Unitarian uh, debate earlier in the spring, one of the things we sought to do was to show that coming out of the Christian position, we had a completely different view of truth, of life, everything. Everything's different. And in fact, it's so different that we even use our logic differently. Even our logic is different. We'll get into that when we get into, into the, some of the attributes, but one of the, one of the points there with the attributes is that uh, how do you say, like in the Trinity, where you have a concept of number, God can be three and one. Well, God obviously is three in some respects, and he's one in another respect. And I don't know how to clarify that. I know that my logic works... And I know that God is perfectly logical, but my creature logic is, is only partial. It's only, it's only valid to a point. What we have to do in conversing with a non-Christian is not allow him first to set up the nature of the discussion. I think that's critical. And that comes out in ways 
um, when, when they ask you a question, um, I, I don't think too fast on my feet. And, and, and that's, I, I really envy people that always have the quick response. I've always been enamored with Bill Buckley on, uh, when, when he gets on Phil Donahue's show and, and leaves Phil Donahue in a pile of quivering flesh uh, because of his quick replies. Um, but he, he, he's able to rephrase the question right from the start and not permit the agenda of the non-Christian to do this. Like, for example, uh, how can you, so intelligent and so well-read, believe in an ancient book? Um, The question carries with it a sort of spirit that the Bible is some sort of unworthy thing and that you've just kind of lowered yourself uh, to, to be an intelligent, educated American, and here you go and have this little ancient book. The problem embedded in that very question is a totally wrong view of what the book is. Right? What is that ancient book? It happens to be the word of the living God who created the universe. So somehow you have to imaginatively work, work around, maybe with another question or two questions or three questions, uh, something in the order of, well, let me ask you this question. Um, you know, out in the Arizona desert, and maybe you've seen about in the, in the papers, they, they're spending millions of taxpayer dollars building these radio telescopes. And the whole object behind building these million-dollar telescopes in Arizona is so that they can see if there's life in the universe going to listen to it. And what we have in this, this malign little ancient book is verbal communication from not just within the universe, but from outside of it. And therefore, as an educated thinking person, I am very much interested in this book because it gives me verbal revelation of the living God. So I, I try not to, at the start, to agree with it because if I start trying to say well gee there are great prophecies in the Bible and this and that that, that may be an approach and you may be very very good at that approach it's just that somehow you want to stir up a conviction in their mind a doubt in their mind about where they're coming from I think that the non-Christian who's, who's that child who's closing his eyes in a tantrum to shut off God's existence has got to somehow be undermined in his confidence before he'll even listen to us. As long as they think they've got it and you feed little pieces to them, they just keep absorbing these little pieces and throwing them away. Somehow, and I can't give a canned approach to this because it varies with the person, but I think it is to mentally think of yourself in the situation with God, Jesus Christ, with you, how would he answer that? Can you imagine, whatever answer you give, could you imagine that coming from his righteous, omniscient lips? And it might help in, in how we phrase it. It is not an easy answer, but it's, it's more of a discipline so that you don't get yourself off on the right, wrong track. That's, if you can just keep yourself from getting led off 
And you won't always be successful doing that. But you have to, it's a skill, I think, that you have to learn. I mean, this stuff I'm talking to you, you know, this wasn't clear until the 20th century. The stuff, this presuppositionalism, wasn't clarified until 1940, 1950. Now, the church had gone on for 1900 years, clarifying as the Holy Spirit led one area after another, like the first four centuries of the church, they clarified who Jesus was, and then Middle Ages, they clarified what Christ did on the cross, and the Reformation, they clarified the authority of Scripture, and there's been progressive clarification. But this didn't come quick. This came out of the agony of struggling with unbelief. Unbelief that has destroyed our te- scriptures. Every kid goes to college now, gets a course in the Bible as literature, and they come at them and they attack them and say that, you know, this was uh, written by JEDP and the documentary theory, and they have all this analysis of the Bible from within the non Christian perspective. And we have to undo all that. And the question is, how do we undo that? Well, we have to say that all that analysis work that you German PhDs did that created this thing, German rationalism, in the 19th century, you were wrong because you started with a wrong premise. You were brilliant, but you're brilliantly wrong. I think asking them a question does something else. It it shows respect for them. With, instead of just chopping at the bit and, be, and coming off like a smart aleck or something, uh, to ask them a question, you're conveying that you're interested in enough in how they're thinking to really be questioning. You're not just going to give them a flippant answer because... Um, and, and another que- thing comes to my mind here, too, is if you don't know the answer, say so. We don't have to protect ourselves by pretending we have all the answers. Because it goes back to incomprehensibility. Beats me what's on God's mind. Hey, I don't know. So I'm relaxed admitting I don't know the answer. Or saying, I don't know that. I'd have to think about that. That's a good question. There's nothing wrong doing that. Henry. Yeah. And boom, now he's back on the defense. If he has to now 
role of Mahinas to answer you. And generally, they're not prepared for that, so you've got them to over it all based at that point. And then you can continue. I mean, it depends on how many you want to be. Well, but that's true. And you see, what Henry's getting at there is you notice what he said. What's your authority? Excellent. Excellent response. Because, see, that puts... I mean, we're not the people that have to defend here. Our authority is God. Now, we know that if God isn't going to be your authority, you've got to replace him with something. What's the replacement? What's the alternative? Very good. And um, we got talking about some different things. And he said, you're one of those fundamentalists, aren't you? And I said, oh, yeah. He said, you believe that the Bible is the whole thing? And I said, oh, yeah, I believe in that book. I just need to be able to understand it. He said, see, you and I are different. And this, I think, is probably the toughest thing to worry about. He said, you use the Bible as an authority. He said, I don't. I compare what I see with my mind, church teaching, or church tradition, and the Bible. And I compare all of it against those three things. He said, you believe that the Bible teaches that women shouldn't be preachers? I said, yes, I agree with that. He said, you see, in my situation, I look at church tradition. I look at the Bible, and I use my own mind. And I said, no, what you're really saying is you use your own body. Exactly. And you have to call your own authority. You have to decide whether God's word is right or the church's tradition is right. That's right. You are God. And he said, no. He said, I think I have a problem with that. <laughs> yeah. But that's exactly the point. That is exactly the point we're getting at. There aren't 15 and a half, 52 different views. There are ultimately only two. Either the word of God is the authority or it's the word of man. Now, another way of phrasing this that might help to kind of visualize the process, this was done by a friend of mine one time and he said, you know, you heard the debate about the word of God being inerrant and there's a big question about the Bible and inerrancy and stuff. And he said, there's no debate about inerrancy. Everybody believes in inerrancy. The debate is over where we locate it. And that's true. You either locate the authority of inerrancy in the heart of man, or you locate the authority in the Word of God. There aren't any other locations. Now, th when you say it that way, that really gets under people's skin because they don't want to claim themselves to, <laughs> to really be infallible. But like Henry points out, that's exactly what was going on with that preacher. If he says that he is sitting there and here's the Bible, here's church tradition, and here's all of his experience, and gee, I'm going to, I'm going to check this all out and I will make the grand truth test. I make the truth test? Boy, that sounds a lot like Eve, doesn't it? In the garden... Satan told her, Eve, now this is what God said, and this is what man said. Or this is what, this is what God said, and this is what I say. So now he, he has two things. And Eve sits there and she says, gee, I've got to decide. He already had her. He set her up. Because at this point, she is now implicitly saying by this, the same thing with the preacher that Henry's talking about. What's happened there, the hidden assumption, is that all these things are of equal value. 
So already you've canned it. It wasn't... Say, see, what Eve should have realized is it's not the Word of God at this level and Satan's Word at this level. It's the Word of God at this level and Satan's Word undercutting it. But if you're going to say, gee, this might not be true and this might be true, you have implicitly put those at the same level. And guess who is the one that decides? And that's the, that's the story behind the whole issue of scriptural authority. The whole thing is shown right here. And that's why when we get into these attributes of God, we want to realize that it's not man generating these qualities and pinning the donkey's tail, so to speak, on God. These aren't qualities men make up. God's qualities are there in his character. And he reveals them to us as his creatures. So all these attributes are God perceived in humility of a creature. Yes, Debbie? It goes back to the, to the note that I made that earlier is that the creation event, folks, is taken historically by the church for centuries to define our God, not the cross. The cross is a sacred moment in history. And without that, we have no salvation, no demeaning of the cross. But the point is, the cross itself can be misinterpreted if you don't first lock in who God is that's demanding all this. It's his definition of holiness that's violated. Otherwise, the cross becomes a nice little sweet example of a martyr that died for somebody. Excuse me, but that is not the gospel of the New Testament. So all these warps and twists that come in on, the, on top of the gospel have come in primarily because we're not listening to the rest of the scripture. So next time we're going to deal with the attributes of God and I uh, really uh, trust that this will be a little more <laughs> practical um, than Q and Q, but I had to go through that because I want you to carefully understand that we are not talking about abstract qualities. We are talking about a person's character here. And he's an infinite person's character. And we talk with him with awe and with majesty because we can never encapsulate him in, in our understanding. We just take from him what he shows us. And that, and that alone is all we have. But it's enough. Because all we need to do is know enough to trust him. Revelation is sufficient. But in one sense, revelation is never, ever complete. Okay? Got to cut it.